This episode of the For Real Podcast is sponsored by Book Riot Insiders. Bag your bookish perks with a 14-day free trial of Book Riot Insiders. If you sign up for a monthly or yearly novel subscription, the first first 14 days will be free. Uh, You can wishlist upcoming releases you're dying to read, get exclusive podcasts and newsletters, and enter to win swag. Uh, And one of the best parts of Book Riot Insiders is the new release index, which is a collection of books curated by all the books host Liberty Hardy that'll help you keep track of the most exciting upcoming books. So come on in. Your bag of bookish perks is waiting. Go to bookriot.com slash insiders to find out more. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, August 15th. Hello, Alice. How are you doing today? Hello, Kim. Uh, swell. Um, we have finally reached the f- slightly fallish season where all of the books are now out. Um, Or at least it feels like it, you know? (laughs) There's so many. There's so many. And really good ones, too. I'm excited. There's a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Um, The thing I am excited about this week that is not new books or the weather, the weather has been very nice here, uh, is that uh, this week, Tuesday the 14th, was Minnesota's primary election. So I got to go exercise my right to vote, uh, which I was very excited about, especially in context of this week's weekly theme, uh, which we're going to get to in just a little bit. But it has to do with uh, voting and our ability to participate in democracy. So that was very exciting. I don't know. Did you guys have any primaries in Illinois? I no, no, we didn't. Um, and I actually, it was it was very delightful though because it turns out I have more friends in Minnesota than I thought. So my Instagram uh, feed was just filled with stickers of people with like I voted things, and I was Yay. or pictures of people with I voted stickers. And uh, I was like, wait, was there an election today? And then I realized like <laughs> everyone was in Minnesota. So uh, that was that was so great to see all of you looking so excited. Yeah. Minnesota had the highest primary election turnout in 24 years. Oh my gosh! Uh, so people, yeah, people here were super psyched about it. It was it was exciting. Like that's nice to see. So, oh, great job! Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. Um, yeah, and we're having like sort of as you alluded. This is there's an anniversary. I should actually know the date. August 20. Basically, the the reason for our theme this week. Uh, it's the 90th anniversary. I think. I don't know. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't remember the year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, 100 is 1920. So if my math is correct, then uh, yeah, we're coming up on 98. So let's see. Do, do, do. Um, Yes. So that is not to be like beating around the bush. So I'm so sorry. Is the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which is women's right to vote, which we will get more into later in the episode. Yes. But first, you have our first sponsor. I do have our first sponsor. Okay. We are sponsored today in part by Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment by August McLaughlin. Uh, Girl Boner is a book on sexual joy, wellness, and empowerment. In today's world, sexual empowerment sells from sex toys to soap. But what does sexual empowerment really mean for us in our own lives? A sexual wellness guide for the modern world, Girl Boner guides you through the process of sexual self-discovery with insight from dozens of health and sexuality experts, true stories from women from all walks of life and practical tips, and journaling exercises. So really, this is just sort of has it all. Um, If you are interested, you can find 
find Girl Boner online or probably in your local bookstore. It came out this month, August 2018, and we thank them for sponsoring. Yes. Excellent. And so with that, we will jump into our first segment, which in every episode is new books. Uh, And I anticipate the new book section will continue to get a little bit bigger over the next several podcasts because August, September, October is extremely busy in publishing. So we've actually, I think, got three books each this week, which I am excited about. Um, So my first book is A Deal with the Devil, the Dark and Twisted True Story of One of the Biggest Cons in History by Blake Ellis and Melanie Hicken. And that is out recently from Atria Books. Uh, And in this book, uh, two journalists, I think financial journalists for CNN, track down a mysterious French psychic at the center of an international scam targeting the elderly and emotionally vulnerable. Uh, So these two journalists got a tip or learned that um, older Americans were giving away thousands and thousands of dollars in these um, financial schemes. Uh, And so they dug into it and discovered that there was a French psychic at the center of a good chunk of these. Um, So the women or the people who are being scammed got a letter from this woman who told them that she had psychic powers. Uh, She convinced them to send her money in exchange for, quote, riches, good health and good fortune. Uh, And eventually she scammed more than $200 million from people in the United States and Canada. Um, So like that is sad, but also I enjoy a good con story. So I'm like kind of back and forth on this one. Um, So these two journalists, they wrote a big series about this event or incident for CNN, and then they continued their reporting and uh, published this book. So it goes beyond that series to kind of where this kind of has gone and and what they've uncovered since they kind of broke the scandal in the news. Um, So yeah, it's like nobody likes the idea of old people getting scammed, but I like con stories and I like stories about con artists. So um, I'm excited about this one. I think it's kind of right up my alley of true crime that's not too like gruesome and horrible. Uh, So that is A Deal with the Devil by Blake Ellis and Melanie Hicken. $200 million? I know. That's nuts. It is nuts. It is nuts. That's so so much money. And I mean, it is is very sad to have uh, old people. Who like goes after old people aside from French psychics? That just seems horrible people. Oh, gosh. All right. Yeah. I mean, at least apparently no one got like murdered or something, unlike some of our other books. As far as I know, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, bright side of things. Um, my first pick this week is Amateur, A True Story About What Makes a Man by Thomas Page McBree. Uh, it came out August 14th from Scribner. So in this uh, new book, the author, a trans man, trains to fight in a charity match at Madison Square Garden while struggling to untangle the vexed relationship between masculinity and violence. Um, I'm probably like a quarter through this book. And um, I started it actually at my local bookstore the other day. And I had um, I had a copy of it, like an e-copy of it at home. And when I started at the bookstore, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. And the cover is great. Um, mm-hmm. The author is basically talking about how he uh, his transition happened at what he also considers this really pivotal time in America. So, you know, it's kind of like around the end of Obama and how everyone is saying like America is like totally better and progressive and amazing now. Right. And then like this discovery that it's not. And so he at the same time is having all these um, men in his life sort of tell him, you know, like, well, this is what it is to be a man. Right. Like men don't touch and men don't express emotion and all this stuff. And he finds himself faced with all of these like people want to fight him in public because he's like five foot six and like smaller and like 
all of these ways. And he finds himself being um, complicit in uh, sexism at work and just like all the stuff. It was really fascinating. Um, right. Cause you're like learning to do this and then observing your own bias. And he was trying to be yeah. really deliberate in recording like what was going on. Um, he said that he found himself interrupting women in meetings more than men and like just showing it was, just, it was really interesting. So anyway, um, I really recommend it. Obviously, it is, again, Amateur, A True Story About What Makes a Man by Thomas Page McBee. That sounds super interesting. I'm really glad you talked about that one. Um, Yeah, like people kind of seeing the world from an entirely new perspective and like being able to think critically and and write engagingly about that. That sounds super great. Um, Second book I want to talk about this week is called Reader Come Home, The Fate of the Reading Brain in a Digital World by Marianne Wolf. Uh, and I have talked about Marianne Wolf um, on the podcast before. She's the author of Proust and the Squid, which was a look at uh, our reading brain and kind of made the argument that reading is not something that we're genetically designed to do. And it is something that we have adapted and that we have built neural pathways. And so it looks at how reading actually impacts our brain. Um, and so this book, Reader Come Home, is uh, kind of a follow-up to that or an extension of that, um, looking specifically at the effects of a digital life on our brain and how that affects the adaptations that it takes us to, takes our brain or the adaptations that happen in our brain so that we can read how digital life uh, changes that. Um, so she is a cognitive neuroscientist and she's been studying reading, particularly reading in children and how kids actually learn to read and all of the plasticity in our brains that, um, the things that have to happen for that to, to work. Um, and so, yeah, this book just kind of explores now after finally kind of understanding how our brains read, what it means to have just a digital experience and um, particularly like digital reading versus reading of physical books and how our brains process that differently. Um, And I'm not super far into this one and I feel like it's going maybe down a path that suggests that like digital is terrible. We should get rid of eBooks, blah, 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 which I don't necessarily think is um, the best or most like, yeah, not really the best argument, but I like her writing and, um, I like having an excuse to read something that makes me think about how awesome reading actually is. You know, like it's a thing that I have always taken for granted. Like it is a thing I have always been able to do and it is a thing that I love to do and it is a thing that has come easily to me. Um, And so reading any book that kind of talks about like how and why we read is I enjoy it because it lets me kind of dwell in my happy place. So um, even even if this one is going to go maybe a little anti-digital, which I don't know for sure because I'm not that far into it yet, um, I still think it's probably going to be a good read. So uh, that is Reader Come Home by Marianne Wolf. Dang, there's a lot of good books coming out right now. Um, no, that sounds great. And it reminds me of I have this whole theory around if you write a book that takes place in a bookshop, it has a much better chance of selling because mm-hmm. booksellers want to buy it. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and book people like dream of working in bookstores and libraries because they think it's romantic and stuff. And so people who love books will read books about book places. Exactly. It's just, it feels like a winning scenario. So any of you out there who want to write a book, maybe sit it <laughs> in a bookshop. Um, okay. So my next one is kind of like, I usually not on purpose necessarily try to pick something that's like a little bit like a walk in the park. Um, 
And I feel like this one is that. It's called A Life of My Own by Claire Tomlin. Uh, comes out August 21st from Penguin. So the day this episode comes out. Um, and so Claire Tomlin is the renowned biographer of – she wrote a biography of Dickens, of Samuel Pepys, uh, Thomas Hardy. She actually has done a number of things about around Dickens, including um, I believe The Invisible Woman about Nell Turnin, the woman he had an affair with. Um, she is the former literary editor for the Sunday Times. So this is because she is this famed biographer, a very respected biographer. She is writing her own life in this book. Um, I think she's in her 80s, I think. Don't quote me on that. She's definitely old with a capital O. Um, <laughs> while I was reading this, I kept – I was like, I can't tell if – I feel like she's like super name droppy or if that's just like her life because I feel like it's very escapist and that's what mm -hmm. I meant by a walk in the park where she's like, I think that she had a hard life, but she doesn't really go into that and it's more sort of like, and then I ended up, you know, spending a summer like taking a class at the Sorbonne and then, you know, I, I ended up transferring <laughs> to this other school where we just sat by the pond and read Yates and I was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> So um, I can't tell if I would want to hang out with her, but I very much enjoy reading about her uh, very weirdly idyllic uh, 1950s sort of life. Um, where I am in the book, I'm like halfway through. I'm pretty sure it's about to get very sad in terms of um, her husband. But uh, but then she went on to write all of these amazing biographies. So great job, Claire Tomlin. Again, that is a life of my own by Claire Tomlin. I like your description of a, of a walk in the park because, yeah, sometimes you just want something that's going to just be, like, soothing and, like, nice and it's not going to, like, make you upset or it's not going to really, like, challenge you very much. You're just going to, like, sort of absorb in this book and I like, yeah, that sounds fun. <laughs> sounds like the thing. Um, the last one I want to mention for today is called Proud, My Fight for an Unlikely American Dream by Ibtihaj Muhammad. Uh, and this is a memoir written by the first Muslim woman to medal, a Muslim American woman to medal at the Olympic Games. Um, and so Muhammad grew up in New Jersey and she was the only African-American Muslim student at her school. Um, when she was 13, she started fencing, which apparently is like old to start fencing and that most fencers start much younger than that, which that seems really strange to me that like you would have to decide when you're like younger than 13 that you wanted to try and like be good at fencing, but whatever, that's fine. Um, but anyway, she started at 13 and she was great at it. Um, but you know, being Muslim, African-American and Muslim, the fencing community didn't always welcome her. She was different. Um, but she eventually made the U S Olympic team. She competed wearing a hijab in the Olympics and earned a bronze medal with team USA in the team saber event, uh, becoming the first Muslim American woman to medal, uh, which is great. So this is her memoir. Um, it's out pretty recently, I think in late July, actually. Um, and yeah, I haven't read it. I don't really know much about it, but I just think her story sounds really fascinating. And so um, it seems like this would be a nice, good, you know, interesting story to pick up and, and know about our someone cool in our community who did something awesome. So uh, the book is Proud, My Fight for an Unlikely American Dream by Ibtihaj Muhammad. That's another where the cover is really good. It's like her holding mm -hmm. like a fencing uh, blade. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> a sword of some kind. Um, yeah, she looks really cool. Um, I just saw that. Actually, yeah. at, and also at my local indie bookstore, they had that on the shelf. And I was like, oh, that, that book just came out. We should talk about that. So thank you for bringing it up. 
Um, my last pick, yes, is The Kill Jar, because uh, we have to, of course, have a book about true crime slash murder. You already did true crime, so I'm doing the murder part. Uh, the the Kill Jar Obsession, Descent, and a Hunt for Detroit's Most Notorious Serial Killer by J. Rubin Appleman. It came out August 14th from Gallery Books. Uh, so I read this book in its entirety. It's it's um it's a quick read. It is very dark. So if you are not in a place for that, you should not read it. Um, there's a lot of stuff with like self-harm on the part of the author, because it's like his narrative. And then his um, research into the um, Oakland County child killings. So that's the other thing is there are child deaths. It is super, super dark. That being said, again, very readable. And it was it's very well done. But it's kind of like you need to have those warnings going in. I went in and I was like, oh, my gosh. It's very much like um, like film noir, but taken to like a modern level of, you know, kind of – uh, I guess like explicitness. I don't know. There was just a lot where I was like, this is, uh, well, a lot. So anyway, essentially, um, this, it covers, uh, again, the Oakland County child killings in 1976, 1977. Um, it ends up being, there's just like, there's a, series of things. Like it's not just the child killings. It ends up like they are probably related to these other terrible things that were happening in Detroit and Michigan, um, as a whole. And um, it just feels like, hence the sort of like film noir things, it's one of those things where like the investigator, he's like, oh, this goes all the way up to the mayor, you know, and um, not that it necessarily did. I'm not maligning the former mayor of Detroit. Uh, But anyway, so if you are in a place where you feel like you can handle that level of stuff, um, I I do recommend it. Um, It's it's a very well done book. Um, Again, it is The Kill Jar, Obsession, Descent, and A Hunt for Detroit's Most Notorious Serial Killer by J. Rubin Appleman. Oh, and then it's our sponsor who... um, Yes. I, I, I feel like maybe that title works okay so our other sponsor for today is tragedy plus time by adam Caton holland uh unsentimental unexpectedly funny and incredibly honest tragedy plus time is a love letter to every family that has ever felt messy complicated or even momentarily magnificent the Caton holland siblings were a trio of brilliant acerbic teenagers from denver who were taught the injustice of the world from an early age Adam chose to meet life's cruelties with comedy. His older sister chose law, while their youngest sister struggled with depression and ultimately took her own life. An unforgettable tribute to a lost sibling, this extraordinary memoir will have you reaching for the phone to call your brother or sister. Uh, You can find out more at tragedyplustimebook.com. And thank you for sponsoring. That one sounds sad, but it also sounds good. Excellent. All right, so now we get to shift into our weekly theme, uh, which actually I'm very excited about. So our weekly theme is the suffragettes and the uh, women getting the right to vote, which uh, happened when the 19th Amendment was ratified on August 18th, 1920, um, which I actually like didn't put that together. The reason I thought it would be fun to talk about the suffragettes is because of some news that came out about an adaptation. Um, but then it also coincides with this, um, the amendment happening in just a couple of days ahead of when we're recording and behind when this episode is dropping. So um, anyway, it was kind of an exciting like confluence of 
events. And also, Alice, you are extremely passionate about the suffragettes. Uh, Yes. So passionate. Okay, carry on. I love it. Excellent. (laughs) Um, Actually, before I get into that, I want to ask you a question that I didn't tell you I was going to ask. But when did you like first become super interested in the women's rights movement and the suffragettes and all of that? Like, do you remember? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked. Essentially, in in very much brief, uh, there is a music video set to Lady Gaga's Bad Romance that is, yeah, and it's a parody and it's all about Alice Paul and the battle for suffrage, uh, which is, um, what is the chorus? I should know that. Oh, well, I used to basically for like years ago, hence me not being able to remember at all right now, but I watched it like multiple times a day for like weeks. And uh, I just, I come from a fangirl background. Okay. So this is like normal, but um, yeah, it was, so I then was like, I don't know who this lady is. And so then I read a book and then I read some more books and then I got really, really into it. So um, yeah, that's, that's how it is. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to go look that up immediately after and I will try so hard to remember to put a link to it in the show notes so other people can see it too. Um, So first, the big exciting like adaptation news. This came out in early August and the news is that Hillary Clinton is partnering with Steven Spielberg and Steven Spielberg and his studio to bring uh, The Woman's Hour by Elaine Weiss to the small screen. They're going to do some kind of TV adaptation of that book, which just came out earlier this year. Um, it is her, it'll be Clinton's debut as an executive producer on a TV show. Um, and the book uh, follows the activists who led the fight to grant women the right to vote um, and looks at the last six weeks of the fight to ratify the 19th Amendment when they were trying to get it approved in the 36th state, I believe. Uh, yeah, the, so 35 states had ratified the amendment, 12 had rejected it, and so they were in Tennessee trying to get the 36th state. So all of the suffragettes and the anti-suffragettes and business interests and everybody converged on Tennessee to try and influence this fight to um, pass or not pass the 19th Amendment. So the book uh, follows all of those different people in this kind of very compressed six-week time period. Um, and so I uh, I talked about this on new books like many moons ago, I think, like probably when it first came out in March um, and uh, was really excited about it and then never actually got around to reading it. So I finally got around to reading it after this news came out because I wanted to be able to talk about it on the podcast. Um, And it is great. It is such a good book. And I'm so like, it's perfect for a TV show um, because it it is a compressed, like, so one of my um, old journalism school professors used to say that, talk about how long-form journalism, long-form stories, one of the structures they can have is something called story information, story information. So you do narrative for a long time, and then you pause it, and then you like drop in a bunch of information, and you like tell people as much information as you can until you think they're going to get bored, and then you go back to the story. Um, and this book does this so perfectly because the story is this six-week fight to pass this amendment. And then the information is sort of the background on how the whole uh, battle for women's suffrage happened in the first place. And so you get a bunch of history, but you get this really engaging story with a lot of interesting people all in the same place. Um, So I think as a TV show like that kind of compressed um, narrative is going to make a lot of sense. And then it's also just, you can kind of throw in some other background and history or whatever if you need to, but, or you could just focus on the fight. And I think that would be interesting. Um, 
So yeah, if you need just kind of a good overview of the whole suffrage movement, that is absolutely a book, The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote by Elaine Weiss. Um, but I know that Alice has read many more books, and so she's going to talk about some of her favorites to give you if you want a deeper dive than uh, The Woman's Hour. I'm really excited about this, just FYI. <laughs> I mean, that you probably knew. Um, yeah, so I did start with the the 1920 or 19... Uh, yeah, 1920. Sorry. It's 1920, 19th Amendment, and it's very easy to get those confused. Um, anyway, the 1920 time period, it, it is an extraordinarily dramatic story. Um, I feel like they they made that movie Iron Jawed Angels, um, starring Hilary Swank as Alice Paul, but I guess that was long enough ago. And this is, you know, uh, I'm assuming kind of a different story. Like it is that movie is about, you know, like the final passing of the 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 movement for suffrage but they also i like that movie a lot angelica houston plays carrie chapman cat and she does an amazing job oh that's cool that's yeah, a good one i know yeah. but um they added like a weird love story for alice paul that was totally unnecessary and made me mad i was like just cut this part out because she that wasn't accurate <laughs> like it that just wasn't part of her life anyway <laughs> um sorry in terms of actual books something that um as I got more and more into the subject of American women's suffrage, um, I have two sort of pet peeves. And one is that people focus on British women's suffrage a lot with like Emmeline Pankhurst. I mean, when they focus on the subject, right? Emmeline Pankhurst and, uh, you know, like Mary Poppins and like Well Done Sister Suffragette and all of that kind of stuff. And those are great. But mm -hmm. the American women's uh, fight for the vote is very fascinating and goes back to, uh, I would say, like the 1830s. So, and that's the other thing is people, when they do talk about it, they talk about suffragettes as opposed to suffragists. Suffragettes are like the radical arm. And uh, suffragists were just women or people who thought that, um, well, women suffragists were people who thought that, you know, women should get the vote. And um, that fight goes back to, again, the 1830s. And that was like, it had been a building movement for almost 100 years. And it wasn't just like mm -hmm. women march and protested from like 1900 to 1920 and then they got the vote like that's it was like people building on people's work for decades which mm -hmm. is how social change happens but anyway um getting to some actual books um another one <laughs> another one about alice paul is um a woman's crusade alice paul and the battle for the ballot by mary walton which is actually the the first one that i read um and she is a like journalist who she does that great job, right, of, like, not getting stuck in the weeds like historians can do and mm -hmm. just, like, gives you the facts and keeps it interesting and keeps it moving. So um, – and that does focus on Alice Paul primarily. Obviously, it's Alice Paul and the battle for the ballot. But um, if you read The Woman's Hour and you're like, I would like to read even more about this particular time period of, like, the end of the fight for suffrage, um, that one is great. Uh yeah, Alice Paul is in The Woman's Hour, but the book really focuses on three people, um, Carrie Katz, Josephine Pearson, who is president of the a Tennessee group opposed to women's suffrage, and then Sue White, who was with the National Women's Party, which was the more kind of militant uh, side of the thing. So Alice Paul is definitely in the book, but she's not one of sort of the three main characters of the woman's hour i would say i'm so glad you brought up the national women's party um real quick side note again so uh as with almost any social movement you have the more conservative arm which isn't conservative because it's pushing for social change but it's less militant mm -hmm. and um what carrie cat is just for people who have not read this book yet is she is part of the 
National American Women's Suffrage Association, um, which is the more like quote unquote conservative arm. And Alice Paul and um, I'm sorry, who is the person you were saying is representative in Women's Act? Sue White. Sue White. They are Sue part White. of the Splinter Group, which is the National Women's Party, which was much more influenced by the uh, British suffragette tactics, which was like you know throwing things through like glass windows and then uh, popping up in weird places with banners and yelling "Votes for Women." Um, <laughs> anyway, so they're exciting. Okay. So, uh, trying to, I have like so many books and I'm so sorry. I'm going to just like zoom through right now. Um, one of them that I went to a lecture by her and it was great. A lot of people talk about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Um, scholar, uh, Lisa Tetralt wrote a book called the myth of Seneca falls, which came out, I think just in the last couple of years. And that talks about basically how Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony cr- literally wrote the book on the history of women's suffrage and they placed themselves at the center slash beginning of it. Um, Susan B. Anthony wasn't even at Seneca Falls. People think she was because that's kind of how they sort of made it seem. Um, it was, uh, I think I've talked about this before, but it was Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frederick Douglass, and Lucretia Mott. Um, I, I'm, I love that. I'm sorry. I'm talking about this. Like everyone is always just debating about this <laughs> and getting it wrong. Um, anyway, so The Myth of Seneca Falls by Lisa Tetralt. She does a, a really great job of kind of um, – giving you food for thought about Stanton and Anthony and um, talks about some of the more negative sides of them, which hadn't been talked about for a while. Um, I want to do a quick shout out to the portable 19th century African-American women writers collection by Penguin. Um, the uh, black women's suffrage movement was um, – they, they had sort of their – not totally their own thing. They were involved with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which definitely fought for the vote, uh, and with um, the National Women's Party. They, like, marched in the parade, but because of uh, extreme to moderate racism in uh, the women's suffrage movement, they did frequently have to do their own thing. Um, But the portable 19th century African-American women writers collection is this really awesome collection of their writings that I didn't even know, like, existed. So it's it's fantastic. Um, Let's see. Okay. Women Will Vote, Winning Suffrage in New York State by Susan Goodyear. Goodyear sorry, that is uh, in New York State. Like, they kind of led a lot of the fight, which makes me mm-hmm. mad because New York's always like, we're the best. And the rest of the country is like, get over yourself. But um, they, they did. <laughs> they did do a lot. So um, Women Will Vote came out, I think, last year. And it's it's really good. Uh, Lucy Stone, An Unapologetic Life by Sally G. McMillan. Lucy Stone was also a very early... Um, uh, pro women's suffrage, like pro women's rights person. And she started out as an abolitionist, um, like a speaker. And she made her money by being a speaker in like the 1840s, 50s. And that was, you know, a huge thing. But then she splintered off from Stanton and Anthony. And so because of this like drama in the women's rights movement, she started her own party. Um, because of that, it was right. <laughs> She actually, I'm not going to get the acronyms right, but essentially she started one branch, Stanton and Anthony started another, and then eventually they merged and they became NASA, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, um, which is why it has that many letters is because it was originally <laughs> two, because there was like the national and then there was the American one. And then now, then they became the national American. Anyway. Lucy Stone is actually, she was very grumpy, it seems like, but she was very heartfelt and um, seemed less terrible than Stanton and Anthony, possibly. Anyway, another book. Uh, 
Oh, I wrote that down wrong. I'm so sorry. Fighting Chains. No, it is Fighting Chance. Fighting Chance, The Struggle Over Woman Suffrage and Black Suffrage in Reconstruction America by Faye E. Dutton. I talked about this on another of the podcasts, but basically when the – Kim, you just read about this. 15th Amendment? 14th Amendment? 14th and 15th. Yeah, both of them. Both of them. Um, when they were coming down uh, to uh, debate, basically women's rights got sold out in the interests of just um, – it sort of came down to a um, – uh, I'm going to say practicality situation, even though that maybe that's not true, but it, it seemed like it. Basically, were black men going to be given the vote or was no one new going to be getting the vote? And that's how people saw it. And the women felt very much as they should, especially black women. Yeah. Um, they felt like they they're, they got um, they were sold out. And so this got a lot of people very angry. And so the women's rights movement, um, some of the leaders, especially Elizabeth Cady Stanton, said some very vitriolic and very racist things um, because they were very angry that they had been left out of this uh, new amendment to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So um, this book, um, Fighting Chance, The Struggle Over Women's Suffrage and Black Suffrage in Reconstruction America, is about that fight and about sort of the main players being Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass. Um, yeah, the, the chapter on that in um, The Woman's Hour is really interesting because it talks about how, yeah, like women could have had the right to vote potentially when the 14th and 15th Amendments were coming through, um, but then they explicitly put men in them um, because the calculus was we can't, we're not going to be able to get voting rights for all, so we should get voting rights for black men because they're men, but also there were some arguments about um, them needing the vote to protect themselves because racism was such a, is still such a um, force in the United States that like not having the vote for black men, like put their lives at risk um, was like kind of the argument and women they, were not at risk in the same way. I was going to say, do they quote that, that famous thing Frederick Douglass said where they were basically like women were saying like, this is unfair. And Frederick Douglass is like, uh, when you are constantly at risk of being murdered, then maybe mm -hmm. it's like, you're, yeah, I feel like that always gets brought up as, um, yeah. The response. So, yeah. Sense. So the book, yeah. So the book talks about that and about how like being left out of this sent some of the suffrage suffragists down paths of racism and it, it kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, women's uh, right to vote got held up decades after that um, because they weren't included the first time, which is, right, like, partially, though, like, how social change movements happen. Like, you try to go as far as you can, and then sometimes you can't go far enough. And so, yeah, I think the book, um, The Woman's Hour, gives a nice kind of balanced look at, at how and why that happened and what it did to, what it resulted in women doing that, like, we wish that they hadn't, I guess. You know what I mean? I think it's interesting, though, that they worried that, like, that was their narrow window, you know, mm -hmm. to get the vote. And then it turned out that that was kind of true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're not wrong. <laughs> no. Um, okay, what else do I have? I have two others. Um, and they are on purpose kind of paired. So one is To Keep the Waters Troubled, The Life of Ida B. Wells by Linda O. McMurray. And then Frances Willard, a biography by Ruth Borden. Frances Willard is, of course, the uh, former president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, uh, which brought hundreds of thousands of women um, to the cause of um, women's suffrage. She also said some extraordinarily troubling and um, uh, I don't know the right word. I want to say like blinded 
statements about race. Um, essentially, she was um, she just wasn't being she wasn't thinking about it. She was she did a bad job. Um, Mm-hmm. But uh, so it's it's one of those things where people are extraordinarily complicated, um, but that does not excuse what happened. But Ida B. Wells, um, who was a journalist at the time, who was uh, leading this um, anti-lynching campaign in an extraordinary uh, sort of feat of bravery because, you know, she lived in the South and then she ended up moving to Chicago. Um, she is the one who called out Frances Willard and basically said that is extraordinarily terrible what you said. And Frances Willard was one of the most famous women in America. I am still awed by Ida B. Wells's um, move there. Um, because yeah, that would be that would be extremely scary to do, but she didn't care. She is the one, I'm sure they talk about this in the Women's Hour, but Alice Paul told her she couldn't march in the women's suffrage parade. Yes. And then she and then she was like, uh, screw it. And she jumped in with Illinois and marched anyway. Oh yeah. Yes. So um yeah, so they had that, I don't know. So Francis Willard and Ida B. Wells, they just they tend to be mentioned in similar paragraphs. So um again, that is to keep the waters troubled, the life of Ida B. Wells and Francis Willard, a biography. Um that's like that's pretty much it. There's also, I mean, there's the Scarlet Sisters uh, about uh, Victoria and, and Tennessee Claflin and because they were kind of um, Woodhull because they were kind of uh, the the scandalous ones of like the suffrage women's rights movement of like the 1870s. Um, they yeah. just provide some fun to the whole thing. And obviously, so uh, Victoria Woodhull is the first woman to be nominated um, for president. And uh, that that is a fun book, Scarlet Sisters. I really enjoyed it. But there's just there. And I left out so many books from this list. People have written. But the problem is so many of them are academic, uh, which I feel mm-hmm. like is, is a problem you can run into with nonfiction, right? Where you're like, okay, I want to read about this. But this is like, it's going a little too deep. Yeah, I actually I think I'm excited, though, because like with the like Hillary Clinton running for president and then the 200th anniversary of the 19th Amendment coming up, I feel like we're going to get a lot more interesting, popular, popular nonfiction books about women in this period and everything that was happening. Um, And like I'm excited for that because, yeah, like you said, a lot of it is academic and it's sort of you have to dig for it. And I think that like over the next couple of years, like that's not going to be true anymore. Like it's going to be all over the place. Uh, And that's going to be really cool. This is true. No, I'm psyched about it. Um, Oh, and I do want to make, I'm so sorry. I have one more statement because I forgot to say it when I said Women's Christian Temperance Union. The, (laughs) um, I mean, I could do a whole thing about that and how we need to think about it differently. But all I will say is that as the uh, director of the Francis Willard House in Evanston, Illinois, has said, um, which I love, the things, the thing about the Women's Christian Temperance Union that is amazing is not the middle part with Christian and temperance, but it's women's union. And those aren't the words that people see today as being shocking. But for the time, that was like the interesting, fascinating thing because Christian and temperance, sure, everyone expected that, but it was a woman's union. So let's, let's not immediately judge is all, <laughs> that's all I'm saying. <laughs> Do you have a favorite person of the whole like women's rights uh, 19, you know, do you have a favorite suffrage, suffragist, suffragette person? Do you mean aside from Frances Willard? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, I really admire parts of Lucy Stone. She like slept on the sh- like deck of a ship to come to school at Oberlin because they um, uh, were anti-segregationist as a school. So um, she came from like I don't know, the eastern seaboard over to mm-hmm. Ohio. Um, I also very much admire Lucretia Mott. I think she was amazing around abolition and um, 
And then also kind of glommed onto, or not even glommed onto, but was pushed into women's rights because um, she was denied a voice at times. Um, she wasn't allowed to go on the podium, on the podium, or sit where the men were sitting for the um, mm-hmm. uh, national or sorry, international abolition conference. And so she ended up basically a lot of women basically got into women's rights because they were trying to have a voice in social justice movements that they cared about, and they ended up men were saying no. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't talk. And because of that, they were like, why can't I? I have these opinions. I have these ideas that are great. And so um, they ended up – they had to go into women's rights because they were like, this is unfair. And um, and the the whole movement towards the vote happened because of that, which I thought was fascinating. So, and I think Lucretia Mott was a big part of that. And she also was like just so insanely stuck with her – uh, her not like principles because that sounds stubborn, but just like she was, she was so steadfast and she like she believed in it so much. And I really admire her. I read actually, um, I should have said that Lucretia Mott's Heresy is a great book. Um, people should read it. She was a Quaker. Excellent. <laughs> oh, yes. that was so interesting. Thank you for all of those books. I am excited to finish the Women's Hour and then dig into something else and keep thinking about women and the right to vote. Because as I was going to vote this week, I was just like so, so grateful and excited that I got to. And like reading about the struggle to get it was like a good reminder that like democracy. Yay. Yay, democracy. All right. Excellent. All right. So now we're going to switch lanes, I guess, and move into our third segment, which we're going to do fiction, nonfiction again, because this is one of the ones I think we both really like, um, because we do both have a lot of fiction that we enjoy reading on top of nonfiction. So this is a fun one to kind of think about. So uh, you're up first. Oh, gosh. I just talked so much. Um, Okay. I will real quick go through this. So the book on a book slash movie, I guess the movie for crazy rich, rich Asians just came out and uh, the book has been out for a while, but maybe you have just picked up the book because this movie looks so good. Um, it looks so good. so good. So I was trying to find books about this super rich to kind of pair with this, um, preferably super rich Asians. Um, but even finding books about the super rich, maybe my keywords were off. It was really hard to find something. I was extraordinarily surprised. Um, there's a lot about, you know, like the 1%, et cetera. But I was like, no, I just want to read about people with insanely wealthy lifestyles and like what, how different their lives are from ours. Um, what I ended up finding was Plutocrats, The Rise of the New Global Super Rich and the Fall of Everyone Else by Christia Freeland, um, which it was a Financial Times Best Book of the Year. It was shortlisted for the Lionel Gelber Prize. Um, and it just sounds kind of fun. There's like a like a private plane on the cover. So, um, yeah. And then the other one, um, because I was like, this is obviously not about um, Asian people at all. And one of the cool things about uh, Crazy Rich Asians is that it has, you know, like this incredibly Asian cast, which you don't see very often weirdly enough nope um which i know people have kind of um been talking about but and then you start yeah and then you're like wait why that it just seems odd anyway Mm -hmm. so the movie slash book are set in singapore and so another nonfiction book to pair with this movie is singapore unlikely power by john curtis perry uh which is basically saying that singapore has gained this reputation for being one of the wealthiest and best educated countries in the world. Um, And it was this um, former colony turned sovereign state. And it's basically saying how if you looked at it, you know, like even not that long ago, that would not be something you would assume and like how the country turned that around. 
Um, so do, do, do. Yeah, again, that is uh, Singapore Unlikely Power by John Curtis Perry. Those are excellent pairs. And yeah, Crazy Rich Asians, that's a good one. Like, I really hope this movie does super well because it, it just looks so great. And also, like, bringing romantic comedies back. Like, that's always a good thing. Yes. Um, <laughs> so my um, pick, first pick for fiction is a book that I, I think it's actually not going to be out officially until the end of this month, but I got it through my Book of the Month subscription. And the book is called The Dinner List by Rebecca Searle. Uh, and in the book, the main character, whose name is Sabrina, uh, on her 30th birthday, she gets the chance to actually experience that hypothetical, like, what are the five people you'd want to have dinner with, living or dead? Um, so she goes to her 30th birthday dinner, and it has this collection of five people um, who some of them are dead and some of them are not, and they get to do this evening together of her kind of processing her life and all of that. Um, and it's like sort of charming and rompish, but also like kind of dark in places. Um, it was an interesting book. Um, but the, one of the people at her dinner is Audrey Hepburn, uh, which reminded me of a book I read like eight years ago now because it came out in 2010 um, called Fifth Avenue 5 a.m. Audrey Hepburn Breakfast at Tiffany's and the Dawn of the Modern Woman by Sam Wesson. Um, and so in this book, like it's a very just like breezy and fun book. And uh, what he does in the book is uses Audrey Hepburn and her persona in her 1961 movie Breakfast at Tiffany's to look at changing ideas about modern womanhood that happened in like the 1950s and 1960s. Um, so he and the book kind of argue that because of Breakfast at Tiffany's and we kind of went from an era when we had like two ideas of what a woman could be, which was either a good girl or kind of like a sex pot, sultry person to having more variety because a sort of quote unquote good girl like Audrey Hepburn was playing a call girl in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And so she in that role helped expand ideas about what we think about modern womanhood. Um so the book kind of focuses on Audrey Hepburn as an actress, the story of how all of the people that came together to make Breakfast at Tiffany's, and then kind of a little bit about how the movie was made, and then some context for the movie. Um, so it's just kind of a nice, like like I said, breezy and kind of fun look at kind of a, a, that movie and Audrey Hepburn generally, um, which I was curious, which I remembered reading after Audrey Hepburn shows up in this book. So fiction is The Dinner List by Rebecca Searle, and nonfiction is Fifth Avenue, 5 a.m. by Sam Wasson. Uh, those both sound really good. I had not heard about The Dinner List, and that sounds great. Um, I'm interested in the dark yeah, part I, that you were talking about. <laughs> the parts of it are kind of dark, yeah. Uh, but I I liked it. Did you, yeah. did you read Breakfast at Tiffany's? Um, the... Uh, the, oh my gosh, my brain just went to John Singer Sargent. Chuma Thank Capote. you. I was like, it's not by John Singer Sargent. <laughs> He's a painter. No, Chuma Capote. I, I actually haven't. No, have you? Yeah. Well, I read it because for two reasons. One is that Agent Scully is reading it in the episode War of the Copperphages in X-Files. And um, <laughs> so I was like, obviously I have to read that. And then also uh, my favorite character in the movie is played by Patricia Neal, who was married to Roald Dahl, by the way. Um, and she plays two E, like two hyphen E. Um, and she's like the woman that, uh, is paying the, the guy, the main guy in it, George Papard's role. Um, oh, uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Her. So she, I thought she was the best part of the movie. I tend to like, sort of like really, um, 
that basically that type of character, like this older woman who is like uh, like upset, but you can't really tell. But then obviously her life isn't going well. Anyway, um, so <laughs> read into that what you will. It's fine. So I love that. But I started reading the book and then I, re- I found out that that character was written for the movie. So she's not in the book, and which was a bummer. Oh, that is a bummer. But anyway. Um, no, but those sound great. Let's see. Oh, okay. And then uh, that, there's my pick, which is Slender Man the movie. Um, I will never see this movie. Absolutely not. No, no but um, it's out now. And uh, some people probably want to see it. So what I have paired it with is The Slender Man Mysteries, An Internet Urban Legend Comes to Life by Nick Redfern. Um, I know you have a question, which is, has he written for UFO Magazine? And yes, he has. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> let your worries be assuaged um essentially uh so this is this is in fact nonfiction. um it is asking who or what is the slender man his existence began on the internet but he didn't stay online oh i didn't actually read all of this beforehand the slender man may be a tulpa a thought form that can stride out of our darkest imaginations and into reality oh if my. enough people believe in it um, a tulpa is also in the X-Files in the episode Arcadia in season six, just as a little side note there. Anyway, in May 2014, two young Milwaukee girls almost killed a friend in the name of the Slender Man. Per- oh my gosh, sorry. Perhaps like the vast Skynet system in the Terminator movies, the internet is turning against us and attacking us with digital equivalents of our own online nightmares. Um, So listeners... Even if we mention a book on this podcast, it doesn't necessarily mean that we ascribe to all of its beliefs. Uh, (laughs) That is my little side note for this episode. Anyway, so again, if you're interested, it is, I don't know why you wouldn't be, The Slender Man Mysteries, an internet urban legend comes to life by Nick Redfern. Oh, goodness. All right. Kind of nonfiction. Nonfiction-y. All right. Uh, so my um, final pick is a fiction book that I haven't read, but that I feel like at the beginning of this year got a ton of press. And that's The Great Alone by Kirsten Hanna. And this is a book that is set in, I think it's 1974. Um, a man comes back from Vietnam, uh, changed by that experience. So he decides to move his family north to Alaska where they're going to live off the grid. Um, So the book is a coming-of-age story about his daughter, um, what happens to the family as the father kind of slowly starts to lose his his grip and um, what it's like to be like out in remote rural urban or rural Alaska. Um, And the the book, the nonfiction book that I thought of when I was thinking about this book was one called Pilgrim's Wilderness by Tom Kiza. Uh, And this is a story about a guy named Papa Pilgrim, who was a reclusive, ultra-religious guy who in 2002 purchased a 420-acre mining area in the middle of an Alaskan state park. Uh, And then like just ignoring uh, government officials and park officials and everybody else, he bulldozes a 13-mile road through this national park to, or in a state park, excuse me, through this state park to the small town outside of the park so that his wife and his 14 children can get to their home in like remote Alaska. Uh, And so it's all about like this small community trying to like grapple with this crazy man living in their area. Um, And he's like an outlaw and kind of a cultish guy. And he like gets in all these feuds with his neighbors and the government and his family. Um, 
And so it's one of those sort of weird, fascinating, like remote dude psycho stories. Um, but I read it when it first came out and I really, I thought it was a good one. Uh, it's just an interesting, like people out in remote areas and what people do when they're like beyond the scope of the law, essentially, because um, they're in the, the wilderness. So uh, they're great alone by Chris and Hannah, which I've not read, but everyone who has read it has told me that it is great. Uh, and then Pilgrim's Wilderness by Tom Kiza. Kiza? Maybe it's Kiza. May- oh, Kizia? Not unsure. Um, so it seems like that's the kind of guy who would move to Alaska. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Also, it's weird to like, so they were selling a mining area in the middle of a state park. Yeah. So like the state park was around it. And then this mining area, I think this, I read this a long time ago, but I, th- I think it was like abandoned. And so he was able to purchase it privately because they hadn't gotten it to be part of the state park yet. But then it, it was like on an, like you couldn't get to it. And so then he bulldozed a road through the state park. So he could. Is it wrong that that kind of makes sense to me? Like, it's like, well, yeah, you got to, Bill bulldoze the road or you can't get to your mining area land home. I'm just saying. I feel like based on your silence, yeah. you don't agree. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave that one. I up. feel like in in the context of the book, it didn't really make sense, but I read this so long ago I'm I'm not remembering exactly why. But uh um, Okay, I trust you. Yeah. I don't I don't know. It's a it was an interesting it was an interesting book. So there we are. All right. So finally we will conclude this week's episode by talking about the books we are reading right this very minute right now. Um so I am kind of in the middle of two nonfiction books right now. Um the first one is called 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown. Uh, and this is a new book that just came out uh this month. And it is a book that is just 99 short vignettes of Princess Margaret, who is the younger sister of Queen Elizabeth II and kind of a recent scandalous royal person of her time. Um and it's just a really like it's a really interesting weird little book. Um well it's not little, it's actually pretty pretty thick, but um the first chapter is just uh announcements about her. So of the official announcements of her birth, of the Peter Townsend affair, her marriage, her separation, her divorce, and then her death. And then um the rest of the chapters are all these just like very like glimpses of her. So moments about her like from other people's diaries, um looking at how she shows up in like a ton of different stories um, and like people's impressions of her as a, a royal princess. Um, so it's it's gossipy in some ways, but it's just like just fun and kind of interesting. And I like that it's these glimpses because I think he's kind of making a subtle argument that like you, well, it's not really very subtle. Um, like you can never really know like people who are like royalty, like we just get these little pieces of them that we try and put together into a story that makes sense. But like the public story we're going to have about them is never actually who they are. And that goes for lots of people, famous and not. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of a really interesting kind of light jump in and out kind of a book because there's not a lot of narrative structure to it at all. Um yeah. And then the other book is uh, Yes, We Sell Can by Dan Pfeiffer, who was worked for the Obama administration. And so this is another Obama admin memoir. Um, he worked in communications. Um, and the book is just about how politics, the media, and the internet have changed politics, basically. And so how they were changing while Obama was president and then how um, people can kind of fight back against the Trump administration. So it's um, another just like kind of nostalgic optimistic politics sort of book uh 
kind of an interesting contrast to be reading that and the woman's hour at the same time, just in all of the like, yeah, fights about democracy and all of that. So yeah, uh, 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown and Yes, We Still Can by Dan Pfeiffer. I keep meaning to start 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret because I did love her on the few episodes of The Crown that I watched. Um, mm, yeah. But I, uh, and that book is actually really pretty. Um, it is. It's got that like striking, it's purple, right? With like the gray or something. Yeah. It's just, it's just a nice looking book. Um, I realized that I forgot to write down what I'm currently reading. And I feel like I'm always dashing between so many books and reading like parts of them that uh, I just had to do like a quick flip through to see what I'm looking at. Um, I am reading a book that I talked about previously uh, as well called The Secret Token, Myth, Obsession, and the Search for the Lost Colony of Roanoke by Andrew Lawler because he is going to be in Chicago on August 20th. So, but you can't find me there because this comes out the day after that. Um <laughs> for you obvious nonfiction podcast stalkery types. Um, yeah, no, he, uh, this, this book like really interested me. I read part of it uh, right before we talked about it like weeks ago, um, probably months ago at this point. But again, it's about um, the early colony of Roanoke in the um, 1600s, uh, 16 or no, 1500s, 1500s in um, off uh, Virginia and how they all vanished and kind of like what happened and where they went. And then it turns out it's not really that much of a mystery, but <laughs> we really love it as a culture anyway and like to think of it as a mystery and like why we like to think of it as a mystery. It's a really cool book. Um, the other one I'm reading actually comes out in October, which I think goes against a little bit of what we normally do, but it's called Forever Nerdy, Living My Dorky Dreams and Staying Metal by Brian Posen. And you should pre-order it because... <laughs> Brian Posen is very funny, and he's a giant nerd. Those both sound excellent. So much good reading. All right. And so that is the end of our episode. Yay. It does indeed. Uh, it is indeed. Sorry. What a great way to go out of this. Um, so you can <laughs> find us on social media if you have any questions, comments, whatever. Uh, on Twitter, I am at It's Alice Time. Kim is at Kim the Dork. Oh, and which we normally don't mention, you can subscribe to Kim's awesome nonfiction newsletter um, at bookriot.com, I think. Yeah, I think it's bookriot.com slash newsletters. Awesome. I think. You should do it because then yeah. she talks about even more books that we don't talk about on here. It's true. Uh, and if you are feeling so inclined, you can uh, we'd ask you or you can go rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Uh, rating and reviews help people find us more easily. And uh, you can also subscribe to get in the podcast of your choice so you can get new episodes the very minute they come out. And so with that, I'm Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Four Real Podcast.